Not like um, one child said to me um, when they were introduced to the Advent wreath, ah, now I get it, it's how many shopping days there are left till Christmas. Um, no, not quite. Um, so it's the four Sundays we're actually on the count up to Christmas. Um, and we can just uh, roll on onto the beginning. Uh, where's, who's going to look after that? Or I could have the clicker. Yep, going to work your, um, Helen, sorry. Oh, I'll have the clicker. Yep, that's cool. Right, it's not the end of the, oh, this is a mini clicker, this one. Which one is it? That one? Yeah. Cool. No? Ta-da! Okay, so here we are. We're in the Advent season, and the four Sundays um, before Christmas is basically we're on a count up to Christmas. And so whenever um, four weeks happens, whenever Christmas happens, we count backwards and have those four Sundays. And Advent, literally, it's a Latin word, actually goes back. It just means the coming of somebody. And for us, actually, we try and hold this double focus together. And it's not too easy because, you know, the tinsel starts sort of, flowing towards us in a great sea of red and green and Christmas, and we're sort of saying, hold everything, just give us time for the purple. Um, so we are thinking, yes, we know that on the 25th, we will be celebrating the first coming of Jesus at Christmas, and we're still trying to find a baby um, the right size to fit in the, fit in the cradle, uh, but hopefully small enough that it will still, still sleep. We have been looking at a girl, so, you know, just we'll just see how it goes. Um, but also, we try and keep that other focus as well on the second coming of Jesus in glory. And some of those songs we've been singing tonight, uh, we had to trawl around a bit, I must confess. We had to go looking for some songs which actually pick up, uh, which is an interesting thing in itself, that there aren't that many songs which actually talk about the second coming of Christ. So we managed eventually, if we scratched around, um, and we found some great songs tonight. And I hope you'll realize that um, a lot of the words long before Phil Wickham and a few of these other guys got hold of these words, they're words straight from scripture. And we're going to come uh, across a few bits more of them later on. So let's, oh, I've turned it off completely. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, on to the next slide. That's brilliant. Sort of the end of the day. There we are. So the New Testament has heaps of stuff about the second coming of Jesus, but often there are passages we don't hear so often, and this time of year gets so compressed uh, that often we don't uh, see them so often. This first one is one that I would think that I would have read at probably... Um, well, 80 or 90% of funerals, and Pauline might well think the same. This is from John's Gospel, and it's a word of real encouragement to people, uh, particularly when they've lost a loved one, and they're wondering where they are. Are they safe with God? And it's one of Jesus' most beautiful promises just before he died. Um, I go and prepare a place for you, and I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And uh, it's a wonderful, in, in John's gospel particularly, we have that sense of making our home with God, of um, us being included in the embrace of God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so that uh, John has lots of those lovely images of finding our home in God and that our last home will be uh, in God's presence and in God's love. 
And then that verse from Acts, which actually is just after the, uh, the account of the Ascension in the uh, New Testament, one of the two accounts of the Ascension in Acts, right at the beginning of Acts, and Jesus has just gone up into heaven, and the disciples are absolutely bereft. They've just got him back again, for heaven's sake. Um, they've just, they thought they'd lost him. They had this wondrous resurrection. They've had 40 days where he's sort of come and gone a bit, but he was basically, you know, they were getting used to having him around again, and then this time he went up into heaven. And they're just standing there absolutely gobsmacked, looking up uh, into heaven. And angels say, this Jesus who has been taken up into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And of course, you know, we struggle. How on earth do we picture that? And usually pictures, um, I'll show you a few later on, but some of them come out sort of quite funny. It's like it's almost easier to picture Jesus on the cross than it is to picture the resurrected Jesus. If you think of any of movies you've seen where they try and show the resurrection, they normally sort of give up or they just do light or something like that. So we'll see how we go. But first of all, th um, thanks, Helen. On to the next one. Uh, we've just got a bit from our church's creed. So this is one of our church's statements of faith, which uh, goes right back to the oh, fourth century, this one. So centuries back, this is what the church uh, claims to believe. Jesus Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. So that's what we hold in front of us. That's what we say. Um, sometimes it comes out a bit on rote. Uh, we say, yes, Jesus died. Yes, Jesus rose again. Yes, Jesus went back to heaven. And we hang on to that hope. One day, Jesus will come again. But we tend to sort of have perhaps floating around in the back of our minds, hang on a minute. It's been 2,000 years. Why is it taking so long? Well, that's where we come to um, a quick look, and thanks, Hannah, on to the next one, at the book of Revelation, which is the very last book of the Bible, uh, the very back of the end of the New Testament. And um, it's, a, it's a tricky book. If you've ever tried reading it straight through, it's 22 chapters, and it's full of the most extraordinary... It's a good read. I mean, it's quite a racy read, um, and it's got all sorts of things in it, but it's really tricky. And um, last book of the Bible, it comes, um, its, its name in the Greek is actually apocalypsis. It means it talks about unveiling, but it's full of language which we call apocalyptic writing. And it's absolutely full of these symbols of dragons and devils and all sorts of extraordinary things, of angels, of, um, yeah, it's pretty, you know, it's real. Peter Jackson hasn't yet dared have a go at it, but I'd, I'd really, you know, it would be awesome, um, perhaps. Uh, but maybe it would be just too much even for him to be able to portray. Um, it's so full of all these different pictures and symbols and images, but it's actually in code. Because what was happening at the time, um, it was uh, they're based on visions that uh, of the Apostle John says he was given while he was in exile. And the reason he was in exile was because Christians were already started to being persecuted. Um, so this is in the, still in the first century. So, so say in those first 50 years uh, after Jesus' ascension, things were starting to get tough. And for whatever reason, John had ended up in exile and he was on a little island. It was actually... Not a bad place to be in exile. It's a little island called Patmos in the uh, Greek islands. Anyone been to Patmos? You've been there, Pauline? 
It's a gorgeous place. I've been there. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind being exiled there for a while. <laughs> if I had a yacht, you know. But unfortunately, poor old John was actually in a cave, and we went down into the cave, which is right down sort of into the earth. It would have been cool in summer. But um, here he had these visions um, of the risen Jesus, and um, he was shown these amazing things. But they are all in picture language, imagery, symbols, and they get pretty complicated. So moving on, just to give it a bit more context, perhaps, onto the next one, um, just to help us with the context. It is a context of persecution and martyrdom. Um, it wasn't too long before things got really tough for those first Christians. And even by, um, in the 60s, so um, about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, uh, the Emperor Nero in Rome, um, he was... He'd, he'd really lost it, and he ended up setting the city on fire, but he blamed it on the Christians. Um, and, you know, the, basically they became the scapegoat uh, for anything that was going wrong. They were beginning to get known as a minority. They were speaking up. And so John felt this message was coming to him to give hope to his fellow Christians who were persecuted and who were really struggling. But he had to sort of code it because uh, you couldn't make it so obvious that you know the authorities would get hold of it. So he starts, for example, um, talking about Babylon. And uh, we know Babylon was a city that was uh, in the Old Testament. There was an empire in the Old Testament. They came at one stage, 6th century BC, and basically wiped out Jerusalem and wiped out the temple, wiped out everything uh, that God's people loved. And um, so John starts talking about Babylon. But we think, hang on a minute, the Babylonian Empire is long gone. Uh, what actually John is referring to this time is the Roman Empire. So when he talks about Babylon, this is code. He's actually talking about the Romans, who are right there um, in their midst and often on their trail. So... Regardless of all that was happening, and, and John's message, even though there's lots of stuff that's rather strange, there's lots of stuff which is hugely encouraging. And there's lots of stuff there that says, regardless of what is happening for you and things are getting really tough, God is still in control. Jesus is still on the throne of heaven. Um, no matter how things are going for you, how much you're struggling. And so there's some great stuff, um, and some of the stuff we've been singing has come from those passages of the book of Revelation. Let's just have a look at, I've just put a little bit on the next slide, which is from uh, Revelation 7. And again, it's one of these amazing pictures, uh, and we sang about a little bit of it tonight. I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, and people and language, standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So uh, one of the tricky, there's a few sort of interesting numbers in Revelation. If you have, those of you who are into maths or numbers, some of them are, um, the number seven pops up a lot. And seven in, in Bible code is actually a number of perfection. Um, so when, uh, for example, it's interesting, it talks about the sevenfold spirit of God. And you think, hang on, how can the Holy Spirit be a sevenfold spirit? But it's actually saying the spirit is the perfect spirit of God. And then it talks about uh, lots of twelves, and some of that goes back to the Old Testament, 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples who become the 12 apostles. And then you multiply 12 times 12, 
times a few thousand, and you get this mysterious number 144,000. And some say, well, only 144,000 people are going to be saved. And there are certain sects of Christianity who believe that. And of course, they think that they're the ones. But actually, this passage reminds us that there is a number that no one can count. And they are from every nation and every tribe and every language and every people. Um, so that's a good, you know, we sometimes get some rather strange teaching that comes through. But this is a good reminder um, that God's love stretches to everybody and all are invited to be part of the kingdom. Just moving on to the next one, Hannon. I uh, just picked up that imagery of the, the lion and the lamb, and, and we've already sung this evening about the lamb. So Jesus is both the lion and the lamb, and we had the roaring lion, I think, in one of our songs there. Um, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and that was Jesus, uh, conquered the grave. And for those of you, I know when I was a kid, I loved um, the Narnia stories of C.S. Lewis, and I actually reckon there's a whole level you can read them as kids, but actually as adults too. There's, there's a whole sort of new dimensions when you come back to them. And uh, you may recall uh, that Aslan was described as a lion who is not safe, but is good. Not safe, but is good. And so you're holding on that one hand the roaring lion, the almighty, the powerful lion of Judah, uh, who is Jesus, who is the conqueror, who has the victory. And then on the other hand, you're holding together with that the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist called him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, we've been singing. And Jesus was like the lamb, sacrificed in our place at the cross when he died on the cross. And so somehow... Uh, the book of Revelation tries to hold together those pictures of Jesus as the lion and the lamb, and we do too in our worship. But um, there's, a next, there's a next one has a picture of them, but sometimes I, I sort of feel uh, rolling onto the next one. Yeah, they end up slightly, well, we've ended up with two lions there just to, to confuse things, but um, we're trying to hold together those images. Now, what we're also trying to hold together in Revelation, just moving on to the next one, is Jesus as judge. And that is part of the message of Revelation. And there are some quite sort of fiery sort of passages about angels being sent out to judge and uh, horsemen. Or you might have heard of the horsemen of the apocalypse. And so, but Jesus' role as judge has a purpose. Its role, his role ultimately is to judge and to destroy all that is evil in the world, to bring down all worldly pride and rebellion, everything that rebels against God, including Satan, including the devil and all his works, and to finally make an end to sin and to death. And we might say, well, didn't Jesus do that at the cross? Yes, he did. That is where he won the victory. But we say, but hang on, why do we still live in a world where we see those things? Why are we still living in a world where there's still pain and violence and people still die? Why is there still suffering? Um, an image I found helpful was, um, it was going back to the, the Second World War, that it was like saying we had victory in Europe, which I think was, was it May? My World War history is a bit vague. Um, and then there were quite a lot of mopping up operations. There were still sort of fires to put out and various things that had to happen. 
before finally there was also um, victory in the Pacific, and total victory, if you like. And so it's like we live in those mucky in-between times, and there's still, we don't live in a perfect world. We're all too aware of it. Uh, and yet we know that, yes, Jesus conquered on the cross, conquered death in the resurrection, but we're still in those in-between times. And so we long for that day when in that really beautiful passage from Revelation 21, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. And don't we long for that day? Um, not only for ourselves, but for those we love. And I was talking to someone just before at this missing people at this time of year um, as we come to Christmas too. Yep. So we're living in those difficult in-between times, and yet we hold that vision in front of us. Uh, on to the next one, and we'll just see a little bit more of the picture of what is in front of us. And it's um, in those last two chapters of the book of Revelation, really padded out and fill it out for us. Because Jesus doesn't come just to judge and to destroy, but to rebuild and to restore. And so creation is moving on the way to new creation. And Jesus promises a new heaven and a new earth. Some will say, well, does that mean this earth is destroyed completely and that God starts again from scratch? Uh, there are different views on that. Mark will be a good one afterwards to ask about that because <laughs> it, sometimes it impinges on science and different things like that. We don't know exactly. Um, we don't. We don't know what it's going to be like. But we do know that God is in the restoration business and that God can always take, just as God takes us and rebuilds our lives, uh, God doesn't need to destroy us first. Sometimes it's pretty tough, but God comes to meet us on the journey and rebuilds and restores. God is in that restoration business. And so ultimately, um, it's not we go back to the Garden of Eden, but we have the promise in front of us of a new and I think even better um, creation. And for us who sometimes struggle with bodies that groan and moan, particularly at this time of year, um, and get tired, we have that promise of new resurrection bodies. Again, we don't know exactly what that looks like. We've got some hints in some of Paul's letters, um, but we do know that God is able to build new creation, and that's what we look forward to. New Jerusalem, a holy city coming from God, but not just um, of one people, not just of one particular ethnic group, but the people of God as a real whole new United Nations um, around the throne as we had that picture. And an interesting thing about new temple, um, those of you who've been to Jerusalem now will know that you can still see the um, great big, um, well, rocks, boulders, I suppose. They were the foundations of the temple that was destroyed in um, 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And you can still see them. It's uh, King Herod's temple. And they were just left there. And the only bit that, um, that the Jewish people have access to is the Western Wall. And some of you may have been there. You certainly will have seen pictures of them praying there and putting prayers um, in the walls there. But when we come to the new creation, we don't actually need, we won't have, heaven forbid, um, St. Barnabas Church. We don't actually, or a hall, we don't need buildings uh, which mediate, if you like, God's presence to us. Because God promises to dwell with us in all immediacy. And I love the way um, the song we sang before talked about our gaze transfixed on Jesus' face. 
um, that Jesus will look on us and we're told that we will see him as he is. And that is the most awesome promise. He will see us as we are, but the look that he gives to us is the look of love. Um, I quoted this morning one of my favorite quotes about judgment is that in the evening of the world, we will be judged by Jesus in love. So judgment um, is surrounded in the love of God, the welcoming home love of God, the embrace of God, which will never let us go. So those are some of the promises just of that new creation. And interesting enough, we're told we won't need sun or moon because God will provide quite enough light. And uh, I always need sunnies, etc., when it's really bright. So I'm just hoping that you know we'll manage somehow. Um, but again, picture language. We don't know. You know, we often tend to take things literally. There's some beautiful pictures of what lies ahead. On to the next one, which is a lovely picture. It's the very last chapter of Revelation. The angel, John says, showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. And on either side of the river was the tree of life. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I think I always have this vision of olive trees. I don't know why. I suppose peace. Um, and that's as we see our world in so much strife so often and so much division, so much violence. Um, long for that picture. And that uh, picture there just holds together those images of the original tree of life in the Garden of Eden, the cross as that central tree which bridges uh, between creation and new creation. And the only way we come to new creation is through the love of Jesus shown for us on the cross. So there we are. Jesus has promised to return in glory. Just on to the last, last slide there. Jesus has promised to return in glory. We hold on to that promise. We still don't know when. Uh, people have worked out all sorts of timetables right through um, when the year 999 was about to become the year 1000. There were huge movements of people thinking, surely Jesus will come back on the first day of the year 1000. And some of us may remember Y2K, going back when um, the millennium was going to start, the second millennium. Surely Jesus will come back then. Um, but no, you know, I think, good on Jesus, he's not going to do it to our timetable. Um, but we still have that promise and we hold on to it. But what do we do in the meantime? What do we do? Meanwhile, there's work to do, to live into that new creation. We can't create it ourselves, but God invites us to be part of the process. Work for the values of the new creation already. Love, justice, peace, healing everybody finding a home in God. And pray, I mean, every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or if you look, if you go to the very back of a Bible and look at the very last verse, it simply says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. That prayer, one of the shortest ones, is there for us to pray too. Meanwhile, we live in hope, and that's what the Advent season reminds us of, living hope and we live and trust in our Lord Jesus. May that be our Advent hope as we journey through to Christmas together. And on into a new year, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know and trust the God who holds our future. Amen.